would anyone be surprised if Jonathan Grimes were this year's C.J. Anderson? If Jonathan Grimes were the player that all of the zero RB zealots were waving around as the reason why you shouldn't draft a running back early? Jonathan Grimes looks like the, this year's C.J. Anderson to me. And some of you might have even drafted Jonathan Grimes in Draftmaster formats that were going on, like MFL 10s. I know I drafted Jonathan Grimes in a handful of leagues before Arian Foster's injury because I think it was self-evident that Arian Foster was going to get injured this year. I mean, Jake Davidow, his site, injury, sportsinjurypredictor.com, they had Arian Foster around an 80% likelihood of missing games this year due to injury, and it's Arian Foster. Like, it's just... You don't have to overthink it. You know Arian Foster's lower legs, whether it's hamstrings, groin, just layered with scar tissue, and that he is highly prone to re-injuring those areas that have been degraded over the over time. And if you go to playerprofiler.com, you can click on the medical icon on Arian Foster, and you can look back on all of his strained hamstrings, calf, back, hamstring again, hamstring again, groin, groin again, hip. Essentially, starting with the hip and you work your way down, it's just one after another little red beacons on Arian Foster's body warning you, hey, this guy is going to get injured. So it made sense to roster Alfred Blue, roster Jonathan Grimes on, on the at the end of any draft, dynasty or redraft, that you've been participating in this year before the injury even occurred. And yes, I said Alfred Blue. That's right. My position is that I'm grabbing Alfred Blue wherever, you know, I can. Whenever he's cheap, whenever he's essentially free, I'm grabbing Alfred Blue as a hedge. And I, even though I'm doing that, I still went to social media and I said, Come at me, Alfred Blue apologists. Come at me, baby. Tell me why I should be picking up Alfred Blue more aggressively. And then I, I, heard, I heard back something from a fantasy analyst that said, Well, it's probably a worthless battle here. I don't think any Alfred Blue apologists actually exists. I mean, no one actually thinks Blue is any good. And I'm sitting there going, well, my timeline says otherwise. You know, I'm supposed to believe that all of these Alfred Blue-related social media messages are floating around, yet no one thinks that Alfred Blue is any good? That doesn't make sense. No one would be talking about him if they thought he was a worthless pickup. So I follow up with this person. And I said, well, you know, my timeline says otherwise. I think Alfred Blue apologists do exist. Then he says, well, I suppose if, if he's in line to get carries over others, well, you know, we can all have our little crushes, like you have a crush on Jonathan Grimes, but it pretty much means nothing if they aren't the one the team wants to give the work to. And that's who Alfred Blue is. Really? Okay, great. So essentially, you're saying, no Alfred Blue apologists exists. Let me go ahead and apologize for Alfred Blue. <laughs> That's just fantastic. And again, I don't disagree. Alfred Blue is on top of the depth chart. But it's early. 
It's August 6th. So the depth chart right now is highly malleable on a lot of teams, particularly the Houston Texans. Because Jonathan Grimes has an entire preseason campaign. All of the the two-a-day practices and all of the preseason games to prove to Texans coaches that he gives the team the best chance to win. And I believe Jonathan Grimes will do that. He may not accomplish it by the end of preseason, but I believe that he will be the starter at some point during the year, sooner rather than later. Now, I was talking about different leagues that I'm in. We are launching the, the, the second annual Roto Underworld Redraft League. And so contact the show if you're interested in joining the Roto Underworld Redraft League. It's a two-quarterback league. And we have a couple different versions. We have a, a higher-stakes auction version. And we have a lower-stakes snake draft variation. So contact the show again at Roto Underworld on Twitter or email the show rotounderworld at gmail.com if you're interested. Now, I had a debate internally with myself. I had a debate with myself. I talked to myself. Yes, hello. Yes, Matt. Yes, Matt. Oh, how can I help you, Matt? Well, I have a question, Matt. I want to talk to you about something. Okay, let's debate something. Okay, Matt, thanks. Let's talk. So, we also have a Roto Underworld Dynasty League that is underway. We drafted at the beginning of this year, and it's been underway for the last six months. And I'm administering the league on MyFantasyLeague.com, and I believe I... I have a whole show, or at least a whole segment of a show earlier, devoted to some of my struggles in managing the settings of the league and and just my quest to administer a dynasty league for the first time and the trials and tribulations that I experienced. I did a whole 10-minute segment on a show earlier. You can look for that on playerprofiler.com. Click on the podcast section at the top. You can go look for that if you'd like. But... There's another challenge with this particular Dynasty League, and it's the individuals that are in the league. It's a listener league, and so it's buzzards, and the buzzards ask to be in the league. Certain buzzards ask to be in the league, and I said, great, that's great. Thank you, everybody. Just like I'm asking the buzzards now, do you want to be in the redraft league? But as I do that, I cringe because I know who ended up signing up for the Dynasty League, and it hasn't been a fun experience. Essentially... there is, I think, a, a at least a, a subgroup of boorish juveniles that are trying to make my life difficult, and I'm wondering why the hell I even started this league in the first place. And I think a lot of commissioners of leagues, a lot of league administrators, have experienced a similar struggle. Looking, looking in the mirror, going, "Why did I set up this league again?" It's unbelievable. These guys. They are posting their fab bids, prospective fab bids, in the chat, in the league, and talking about players that are on the waiver wire and how much they plan on bidding. It's unbelievable. And I had to go on the message board and go, oh, okay, guys, um, so maybe you haven't been in a league that supports, (laughs) you know, free agent auction bidding, but here's how it works. You don't talk about how much you're going to bid on the chat. How old are you? What are you, five? How do you not know that? And then they're lamenting rules. Oh, they're lamenting rules and posting message board items. Oh, should we put this rule up to vote? Should we put that rule up to vote? And I'm like, what are you doing? Like I have time to worry about you and your votes. Like I care. 
These guys, they're like, they're like humorous, humorless seven-year-olds. You know those humorless seven-year-olds you see in the store or at birthday parties and all their only goal in life seems to be to just wreak havoc on everything in their environment? And you look at their parents and their parents mouth back to you, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And you can see them mouthing that to you. And I just, you know, you close your eyes and you give them an earnest nod and you say, yes, yes, I understand. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I'm a parent as well. I, I totally feel your pain and I'm sorry for you as well. And then you hear the kid going, I want this, I want this, mommy. I want this, I want that, I want this. The entitlement that people experience when they join a dynasty league blows my mind. It's unbelievable because the administrator, me, I get paid zero dollars to set up the league and do all of the minutia surrounding the league, all of the tedious tasks that are required to set up and manage a league. get paid zero dollars to spend countless hours administering this league. And so it's kind of tragic when all of the members devote all of their community time to complaining about the league and then they demonstrate zero appreciation in the process. I mean, leagues are weird, man. They are weird. Because I've been in other leagues. The reason I'm doing the Roto Underworld Redraft League in spite of the struggles I've experienced with the Dynasty League is that last year, the people in the Redraft League were great. They were cool. They were chill. They were super appreciative. While in this Dynasty League, these individuals are just shameless. And they just want to impose their whims on the league. And they don't seem to have any concept of the time it takes to administer the league behind the scenes. And it's just weird. It's just weird how there could be two polar opposite groups of people that would gravitate toward a league run by Matt Kelly from Roto Underworld. It's just unbelievable. But I think it's Dynasty. I was thinking about this. I was trying to understand it. I was like, well, okay, so you have super appreciative, cool, chill league in redraft last year. Dynasty League this year, boorish juveniles. Hmm. What's it? So maybe it's the Dynasty piece. Maybe that's it. I think Dynasty Leagues might turn people into animals. Because the stakes are ratcheted up. You have these players for life. Maybe that's it. But I mean, I am never, ever, 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 ever volunteering to administer a Dynasty League ever again after the aggravation I've endured. It has been just wearying and dispiriting. And I now have this total appreciation for Dynasty League commissioners. So I know at Justin Time NFL, you can follow him on Twitter. I follow him. He's great. He runs the Nasty 26. You see guys like Scott Fish that administer the Scott Fish Bowl. After the, what I've experienced with this Dynasty League, I have a whole new appreciation for the guys that manage the leagues. Because it's not just about all the settings and all the minutiae and all the tedium. It's also dealing with the people who are just seem to exist only to annoy you. I mean, I feel like, like you know how there's like a Secretary's Day we have, which is a, a special day for secretaries, a day of acknowledgement for secretaries? There should be a Dynasty League Commissioner's Day on the calendar. They, we should have that. That should be an official holiday. 
Unbelievable. And I think these guys are probably like, wow, pff, yeah, you're talking about us on the radio, on your show. Go ahead. Go ahead. Disband the league. I dare you. We're going to continue to try to agitate you. We're going to continue to be annoying. What are you going to do? you going to disband a dynasty league? That never happens. No one ever does that. Oh, watch me, guys. Oh, you watch me. You watch me disband this league. You want to know how you know that I will do it? When I was in Maine, I went to a family golf tournament. And I promised Rachel, my wife, that I wouldn't play the final day. And therefore, I wouldn't qualify for the championship. About 40 guys. And that's fine. You know, we were only going to be in Maine for less than two weeks. Rachel was only going to be with us for a few days because she had to work and she was traveling for work. So there was one day that we could spend in Portland with me and Vivian and my sister. And it had to be Sunday. And that would have been the final day of the tournament. And so I made a promise. I said, Rachel, I'm, we're going to have a family day on Sunday. And guess what happened? After Saturday, Matt Kelly was leading the tournament. And all these wheels were spinning. How can we figure out a way to talk to Rachel so that you can play? in the? And I, I never even considered that. Those were never conversations. People tried to have these conversations with me. And I just said, hey, man, don't worry about it. It's cool. Hey, man, don't worry about it. It's cool. And honestly, it never I, – I'm, I'm being on – I'm saying honestly because it sounds unbelievable. But it never occurred to me to stay there even though this is a coveted championship in our family. I mean it would be one of my great accomplishments of my life if I won this thing. And I was playing great too. <laughs> That's the thing. I was playing so good. Oh, my God. Oh, I've never talked about it. Oh, man, I can't believe I walked away. Damn it! Oh, I think this has just been building up. I haven't talked to anyone about it. I've just been stoic. It's cool. Rachel asking me, hey, are you sure? You know, you were leading the thing. You were up by two strokes. No, it's okay. No, it's fine. No, no, what? That's not even a... It's just a game. It's just a game. This is family. It's just a game. Damn it! <laughs> oh, I had the driver figured out! Oh! That was just straight and true, the final nine holes on Saturday. I couldn't believe it. It was like euphoria playing. Oh, I was chipping in. Oh, the oh, I had a 60 degree working. I just... I 60 degreed up over a pine tree to the middle of the green. It was beautiful. That six, that wedge was beautiful. Oh my God. I was putting well. Oh, oh, the contact with the putter. It just felt, oh, it just had that, oh, that ting. Oh God. Okay. Put myself together here. Okay. So anyway, Dynasty League mates. I will disband the league if you continue with the agitation. If you continue to be dicks on the message board, the league will simply be turned off and you will all be refunded. I have no problem walking away because I walked away from that golf tournament and that would have meant a heck of a lot more than some 
Dynasty League Championship. So try me! I dare you! Now, when I touted DeMarco Murray and Eddie Lacy earlier this year as guys to target in the first round at the running back position, the reason why was that these players have high floors. And if, when you're drafting a player in the first round, you don't just want to get great production, you also want to avoid the first round bust, which essentially it doesn't totally doom your team, but a first round bust is the easiest way to avoid a championship. It's almost it, it's almost a knockout blow, a first round bust. You, you, you can get very lucky with your late round picks and, and your work on the waiver wire, but it becomes huge uphill battle, huge challenge. So that's why I like to focus on the floor rather than the ceiling of my first round picks, particularly running backs. And also particularly in draft master formats. In draft master formats, you have no waiver wire relief. So if you have a first round bust is even more catastrophic in a draft master format. Draft master leagues are not won by investing early round draft capital in low-floor running backs. That's the easiest way to lose a draft master league. So for, if, for example, if you went wide receiver, RB, wide receiver, wide receiver, wide receiver in an MFL 10 in June, and I know a lot of people did that exact strategy. I've seen that exact sequence, positional sequence. And if that one running back you took in the second round was Arian Foster, then you're... you're you're not going to win. It's, it's over. You're already toast. But it's interesting when you talk about floors because I think I've seen some confusion about what what is a floor? What is the makeup of a floor? What What is included in a floor? When, when I say a floor, what does that even mean? Well, floors are a function of certainty and there are two components to the certainty. One is effectiveness and productivity certainty and one is health certainty. The health certainty piece is what our Arian Foster was missing. And we've discussed why injury histories and mileage on Arian Foster, Adrian Peterson, Marshawn Lynch, and Frank Gore lower their floors. And Adrian Peterson in particular is also attempting to violate Wolf's Law by being out of the league like an astronaut in space for a year and then coming back. So we'll see how that one goes. But there's a whole group of players that are being drafted in the first two rounds that that are not necessarily low-floor players because of injury risk or, declining, or risk of a declining skill set. There's this whole other group of players who are being drafted in the first two rounds, and the reason why those players are... I would say misguided selections in the first two rounds because their floors aren't high enough. It's because that they're being drafted in the first two rounds despite not having started a full season at the NFL level yet. And any projections that you do for their fantasy output in 2015 are based on not simply past performance like you would Eddie Lacy, DeMarco Murray, Matt Forte. But the projections are based on extrapolations. Anytime a player 
has an extrapolated projection, those players inherently have low floors. And the most ex- the most obvious example of this is C.J. Anderson. Now, C.J. Anderson ran for 767 yards and eight touchdowns in the final eight games. That's a stat that you're going to see over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I am tired of that stat. That stat has run its course. But we will continue to be inundated with that stat for the next 30 days. Because that stat extrapolates to 1,534 yards and 16 touchdowns. That's what C.J. Anderson could have done last year if he had just played 16 games, right? Eh, I don't know. Well, there's, there is some, some serious experts with some serious, I think, intellectual backing. So Jake Seeley of Roto Experts featured this extrapolation in his reasoning for ranking C.J. Anderson not the number five running back, not the number four running back, not the number three running back, not the number two running back, the number one running back in all of fantasy. According to Jake Seeley, this year will be C.J. Anderson. And again, Jake Seeley is a smart guy. He's one of those individuals is one of those fantasy analysts whose analysis has intellectual underpinnings that I often agree with and provide sound reasoning and evidence for his positions. So this isn't a guy that is to be taken lightly in the fantasy community. That's why I, I that's why I want to talk about it today because I found it very interesting that a guy of, of Jake Seeley's intellectual heft would go out there and rank C.J. Anderson number one based on an incredibly aggressive extrapolation. Because using the same logic for Martavis Bryant, he would have had close to 1,000 yards and 13 touchdowns last year. And I don't think anyone is coming close to a projection like that for Martavis Bryant. Is Bryant going to be the top TD scorer at the wide receiver position? Actually, yes, but that's Des Bryant, not Martavis Bryant. So, But just look at the C.J. Anderson profile. If you go to playerprofiler.com and go to C.J. Anderson and you scroll down and you look at his efficiency last year, he was top 15 in all the categories that really matter. Production premium, our situation agnostic efficiency metric, measuring him against his peers in all different situations on the football field, plus 26.6, eighth in the league. 4.7 yards per carry was 14th in the league. 4.8 evaded tackles per game, 10th in the league. And a juke rate, evaded tackles per touch, 31.5, ninth in the league. This looks like a good running back. In eight games, what he did efficiency-wise particularly when you look at the production premium and the juke rate, he looks like a fantastic running back. And I was going to say receiver as well because he had a 77.3% catch rate. That was also top 25 at least. So he's also a good receiver. So he looks great in all phases. What is not to like about C.J. Anderson? Well, what's not to like is the sample size. And that while these efficiency metrics look great, 
we have to keep in mind they were posted behind only eight games started. He was an efficiency machine, though. I, I don't disagree with that. Just like Martavis Bryant last year was an efficiency machine. But also, like Martavis Bryant, did C.J. Anderson benefit from playing in high-scoring games against bad defenses? Very much so. Let's look at the C.J. Anderson game log. When did he first break out? Week 10, 26.3 fantasy points. Was there anything special about Week 10? Yeah. It was against Oakland. In fact, during that eight-game span, C.J. Anderson played Oakland twice. And when he played Oakland, C.J. Anderson averaged 6.8 yards per carry. In other matchups, like against San Diego, against Buffalo, C.J. Anderson averaged less than three yards a carry. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind that. This Hey, never mind that. Listen, this guy was 15.1 fantasy points per game last year. That was top 10 in the league. Let's focus on that. Let's not focus on the fact that it was done against Oakland twice. And you might say, well, the Broncos actually didn't have a cupcake schedule last year at all. Sure, they played Oakland, but the Broncos faced the NFC West in 2014. They did. Technically, they did. But here's the funny thing about C.J. Anderson's schedule last year. He skipped Seattle. He also skipped Arizona. And he skipped San Francisco. When I look at that schedule, when I look at the C.J. Anderson schedule from 2014, all I can think is, wow, poor Monte Ball. Ugh, poor Ronnie Hillman. It also made me think of Trey Mason. Oh, poor Trey Mason. Oh, my goodness. Trey Mason, he was thrust into a starting role at a similar point to C.J. Anderson, and he was greeted by San Francisco, Seattle, San Francisco again, Arizona, Denver has a top-run defense, San Diego, Arizona again, Seattle again. Oh, my gosh. Oh, what? They said... Hey, Trey Mason, go run the gauntlet. If Trey Mason had C.J. Anderson's schedule last year, the Rams do not draft Todd Gurley. They don't even consider him. We all are now drafting Trey Mason in the second round of fantasy drafts, and some fantasy expert somewhere is ranking Trey Mason as his number one running back overall. If he and C.J. Anderson had simply flipped schedules last year, And the reason I say that is because even despite the worst schedule for a running back, the worst, the most challenging schedule possible for a running back, Trey Mason still posted a 4.3 yards per carry, which was 26th in the league. And in that one easy game that he had against Oakland, Trey Mason put up a 164 all-purpose yards and three touchdowns, 37.4 fantasy points. Which was more than C.J. Anderson did in either of his matchups against Oakland. Now, a couple things. Support the show. In the middle of every player page on playerprofiler.com is a play this player on DraftKings, play this player on FanDuel button. 
So when you're looking at a player and if you feel like, hey, I want to set up a FanDuel lineup or I want to set up a DraftKings lineup, click on that play button and set up a lineup and you will be supporting Player Profiler and Roto Underworld because we will get a commission on every dollar you spend with those DFS platforms. Also, there's plenty of time to sign up for our concierge service where I get in the weeds with you and we discuss your particular league format, your particular draft strategy, and then I also give you tips and recommendations and advice before the season and throughout the season on waiver wire ad drops, trades, etc. Check that out. But again, we talked about this earlier. C.J. Anderson is that red flag for me. He's a he's the guy I'm staying away from in the first two rounds in terms of running backs. I'm I would rather take Marshawn Lynch and his 2,000 plus carries than C.J. Anderson because I believe that it's it's a tremendous risk to take a player that only has eight games on his professional resume and extrapolate it in order to justify drafting him in the first, say, three rounds. I just would never do that. But C.J. Anderson, it's funny because C.J. Anderson is also that player last year that the zero RB zealots love to wave around. And we've talked about this in a couple shows. Zero RB makes zero sense as a strategy, as a concept in draft master leagues where you risk taking zeros at the running back position literally because you have no access to the waiver wire. You would have to get so lucky with your late round running backs to not get run over by teams with good running backs on a weekly basis to even have any chance in an MFL 10 doing a a proper executing a proper zero RB strategy because you have no waiver wire relief. And when those late round running backs don't hit, you're stuck with zeros. And that that's the easiest way to explain why zero RB just doesn't work in a draft master format. In a draft master format, there's no ability to get Justin Forsett. He will go undrafted. This year's Justin Forsett isn't on anyone's MFL roster. This year's CJ Anderson is not on anyone's MFL 10 roster. But even in leagues that allow in-season moves, I personally have been an abject failure when trying to implement zero RB. And my Twitter name is actually late round everything, so you would think I would be good at it. I'm not. I'm not at all. Here's an example. I was in a standard knucklehead league last year just for kicks. Just to see how it would be. It was my sister-in-law's friends league I somehow joined and it was one of those standard leagues standard everything if you when you imagine the cookie cutter standard league it was that and I did zero RB and I picked up CJ Anderson when Monte Ball got hurt and then I dropped CJ Anderson when the job went to Ronnie Hillman and then Ronnie Hillman got hurt and I didn't have a high enough waiver claim to get C.J. Anderson. So I had C.J. Anderson, and then I actually didn't have him when it mattered, when it would have counted. I also tried to pick the starting running back for the Ravens last year. I thought that would be an easy pickup. 
to help me win that league, the proper execution of the zero RB strategy. So I went and picked up Lorenzo Taliaferro because Justin Forsett was 29 years old and had never been the lead back in his career. Oops. But the zero RB zealots claim that it's just easy to grab the next stud RB off waivers. And I can tell you, from personal experience, it's not. It's not at all. But let's just put it off to the side. Let's just pretend that these two unicorns, Justin Forsett and CJ Anderson, are easy to acquire. And that if, if people that knew what they were doing, and, and, and if you're listening to this show, then you think I know a little bit about what I'm doing when it comes to fantasy football, what players to pick up. So let me tell you what else, who else I tried to pick up last year to try to fill the void that was left in my running back slots by the zero RB strategy. I picked up Darren Reeves. That didn't work out. I picked up Kyrie Robinson. Nope. I picked up Donald Brown. Nope. I picked up Isaiah Crowell. That didn't even work out. I started him on the wrong weeks. I picked up Jonas Gray. Oh, man. The week after, he had over 30 points. But the justification for zero RB is that running backs are commodities. They're expendable. They're interchangeable. C.J. Anderson's a perfect example of that. But Darren Reeves wasn't a commodity. Kyrie Robinson wasn't a commodity. Donald Brown wasn't a commodity. Jonas Gray wasn't a commodity. If you look at C.J. Anderson's efficiency, he was just good. But he wasn't good enough to draft in the second round this year. I mean, it's a weird juxtaposition to claim that, that running backs are commodities, that they're interchangeable, and that the evidence for that is C.J. Anderson. And then, to build a case around drafting C.J. Anderson in the second round because he's so talented. Wait a second, I didn't think the talent mattered. What? Wait a second, are they commodities or not? Why are you drafting C.J. Anderson in the second round? It's unbelievable. Running backs are not commodities. Running backs need to be athletic, but they also need to process information. Being an athlete is both physical and mental. But, that said, the guys with the raw athleticism are generally better. Trey Mason gets more yards out of any given crease that the offensive line provides him than Zach Stacy did last year. I mean, last year in St. Louis, what happened to Zach Stacy? Zach Stacy was serviceable. But if you go to playerprofiler.com, Zach Stacy's burst score isn't anything like Trey Mason's burst score, because Trey Mason's burst score, 128.5, 88th percentile. And because Zach Stacy has significantly less burst and straight line speed than Trey Mason, Zach Stacy was leaving a lot of yards on the field compared to Mason. That's why St. Louis turned to Mason. So how could you call Zach Stacy and Trey Mason interchangeable with a straight face? Last year, the St. Louis running backs were not interchangeable. In fact, Trey Mason was so good, again, against one of the stoutest run defense schedules that you will ever come across. Trey Mason still posted 4.3 yards per carry. But, no. Doesn't matter. 
Zero RB is the way to go. RBs are interchangeable. RBs are commodities. Just go zero RB. I mean, zero RB worked two years ago. I'll grant you that. When it was out of fashion and no one else was doing it, and those that were doing it, the early movers, they were zigging while others were zagging. But now everyone's doing zero RB. So the advantage has been lost. And the bottom line is we're forced to look at what is zero RB really. Zero RB is a gimmicky strategy that forces behavior out to the extremes and handcuffs your ability to be agile during a draft. It is too rigid. It forces lots of missed opportunities because you have to stick with your plan, quote unquote. And if you're drafting with a bunch of experts who are all following both zero RB and late round quarterback, if Andrew Luck falls to the sixth round, you need to draft Andrew Luck because it's all about his fantasy points per game versus the streaming options that are going to be available once you calibrate it against positional bust rates. Zero RB also requires so much precision to be executed in practice that it, in order to be successful, you have to have a treasure trove of analytics at your disposal backing your stratagem. I actually have that with playerprofiler.com and I still can't figure it out. I still can't pull it off. I feel like zero RB is like shooting free throws from the top of the key. Fantasy football just doesn't have to be that hard.